Last session, we finished what I believe was the final letter of the Apostle Paul, and that would be his second letter to Timothy. Today, I want to begin a letter that a lot of people believe belongs to the Apostle Paul, the book of Hebrews. And when the different letters were arranged in the New Testament, which, by the way, that activity was not inspired, uh, those that were doing it included Hebrews at the tail end of the signed letters of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and so it has been a long-standing tradition that this was a, an unsigned letter of the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't agree with that. It is very Pauline. There is no doubt about that. And I believe that is explained by the fact that the person writing it was likely uh, a close companion of the Apostle Paul or perhaps a very close reader of all of his letters. But it was not signed by the Apostle Paul, which right off the bat tells me it is unusual. And the other thing is that in the text itself, the author describes himself as being a second-generation Christian, getting information not from firsthand relationship to Jesus, but from those that knew Jesus. Now, you've heard me talk about this before. That is definitely not the mindset of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul makes a big deal out of the fact that he got his gospel message, not from Peter, not from John, not from any human source. He got it straight from Jesus himself. And so I just do not see uh, the Apostle Paul being able to write the words that seem to indicate uh, a, a stepping away relationship uh, with Jesus Christ that we'll see here in a little bit in this letter. Now let me talk about what I believe is the chronology of this letter. Uh, we already know that the city of Rome, a very large portion of it, burned to the ground in the summer of 64. And that very quickly thereafter, to change the attitude of the Roman people, which had kind of soured against him uh, regarding that fire, uh, Nero began to blame the Christians of Rome for this activity. Uh, and the, the people who were supporting that mindset began to talk about the Christians as being the arsonist cult. And so um, Peter was picked up and other leaders were picked up uh, along with uh, members of, of the Christian church there in Rome and on the continent of Italy or excuse me, on the uh, peninsula of Italy, and they were put on trial and convicted. Uh, and you know that the second letter of the Apostle Peter has some fiery language in it, and I think that that might have been used against him in his trial. So he was crucified, 
probably in 65. And the call went out that anyone that was in leadership uh, for the, the Christian faith should be rounded up. I think that's when Paul got rounded up in 65 uh, and put on trial and convicted. Uh, in Italy itself, and particularly at Rome, uh, lots and lots of Christians were being cr- killed uh, in horrible ways, by the way. Um, some of those people were Jewish by ethnicity. And so it appears to me, and this is the thesis that I will follow in teaching this letter of Hebrews, it seems to me as if the idea crept up in the Jewish Christian community that we would be better off falling back into our Jewishness rather than being caught up in this anti-Jesus persecution. And so the author of the book of Hebrews sits down and writes a response to that attitude, which is basically this. You can't do that because Jesus is the center of the Jewish experience. He is the climax of the Jewish story. And if you abandon him, you are lost. Uh, And so this this idea of motivating the, the writing of this letter is only valid between the time that the persecution started in late 64 and early 65 and the beginning of the year 66 when things started blowing up between the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community of the Middle East and the attitude soured against Judaism as well. And so it wouldn't have done any good uh, after that point to try to retreat into your Jewishness in order to keep out of persecution's way. So I believe the window for the letter we're about to read is the winter, maybe the fall of 64, going into the winter of uh, 65 until the spring of 66. I think that is the exact window uh, for this letter. Now, who is writing it? Uh, It is clearly a Jewish person. We can tell that. Who is he writing to? He is writing to other Jewish people. But where are these Jewish people at? Clearly, they're not in the Middle East, not in Judea, not near Jerusalem, because the things that we read about are being explained as if the people reading it wouldn't understand uh, the things that typically happen uh, among Jews in uh, the Holy Land. Okay, so with all that background, let's read this very important letter, which takes on the form of a sermon, by the way. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. See, that's a summary of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that the Jewish people properly upheld as inspired. So, long ago, in lots of different circumstances, God spoke to those Jewish people that came before us by means of the prophets whose writings we have in front of us. Verse 2, but in these last days, in these most recent days, he has spoken to us by his son. So from the very get-go, this letter is focused on Jesus. Whom he, God the Father, appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And of course, John, when he sits down and writes his gospel, um, right around this time, I think, uh, because um, he mentions the death by crucifixion of the Apostle Peter. And so that happened in probably 64, 65. Uh, and so when uh, John writes his gospel, how does he start it? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was, in fact, God. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him and through him, right? And so here is the very similar sort of language through whom God the Father created the world. Verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, glory is the light. I mean, that's how we describe it if we want to try to make a picture for people. The glory of God radiates outward from him. And Jesus, we are told, is that light of God. And Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. And John wrote in his prologue that he was the light which shines upon everyone that's coming into the world. John the Immerser uh, was not the light, but he talked about the light. So this light um, uh, language is quite common uh, to this time period in the church. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, now, the idea here is if you've got a, a seal that's impressed into a material like clay or wax, it leaves an exact representation of itself. And so that is Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. John the Apostle in his gospel wrote this. No one has ever seen God in his essence, in his reality, not since Adam and Eve. But the, the everlasting God, the, the holy God who is in the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus, he has explained him to us. He has shown him to us. So Jesus 
is the way that we get to know God. So here is the writer of this letter saying, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact representation of his nature. He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Paul wrote, I believe it was Colossians, that he holds all things together by the word of his power. So everything sticks together because of the creative work of Jesus. Now, that is who Jesus is. He is God. Then the author reminds us of what God did. After making purification for sins, so that's the incarnation, Jesus incarnated as a baby in the womb of Mary, grew up, lived the normal human life, was tempted in every way like unto ourselves and yet without sin. That's actually coming up later in this very book. And then he laid his life down as the atoning sacrifice for sin. And then he picked it back up again at his resurrection. And then he ascended on high. He went back to that place from which he came. And so here is the Hebrew writer saying, after doing all of that, after the gospel story, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And that should remind you of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul talks about how Jesus, even though he was God in form and fact, he divested himself, he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives and took on, temporarily, but took on the form of a human. And being found in that form, he was obedient to the Father, to the Father's plan. He was obedient even to the point of the atoning death. And after that, God gave him a name that was above every other name, the name of Jesus, Yehoshua, he who is salvation. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. I really think the writer of this letter was familiar with the writings of Peter, excuse me, of Paul. And so having said all of that, he then tackles a Jewish sort of issue uh, that was apparently popping up at this time. And that is that um, somehow maybe Jesus was just an angel. Maybe he was just one of God's supernatural messengers to get something done. But as he already wrote here, he says, no, he has a name that is much more superior than any angelic name. And the angels have very interesting names. Um, but this needs to be focused on when you come up against certain Christian cults nowadays who will 
still try to make this claim that Jesus is just an angel. They will say he was Michael the archangel that God used for a special program. And the response to that is, no. Jesus was never an angel. Jesus created the angels because he is God. And here is some of the argumentation uh, fighting against that false angel narrative. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And this is a rhetorical question that's expected to be answered in none. To which of the angels did God ever say? And then the quote is from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Uh, Now, don't get confused by the begotten thing there. Um, This was a statement that fathers would make to um, assert their paternity. To make it clear, yes, I am the father of this person. And so that's exactly what God does. God the Father claims paternity for God the Son. Uh, at the immersion, what happens? Uh, the sky splits open and a voice calls out, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What happens at the transfiguration a few years later? Uh, the clouds overshadow Uh, Elijah and Moses, uh, from the apostles' view, only Jesus can be seen, and a voice calls out, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Uh, So this is an assertion of paternity. God is saying, This is my one-of-a-kind Son. And so God's never said that about any of his angels. Angels are referred to in Hebrew, poetically, as uh, the Banei HaElohim, the sons of the Mighty One, the sons of God. But God has never claimed any of them as his legitimate son. Not in this fashion. Uh, Or again, the writer says, quote, and this time the quote comes from... um, Second uh, Samuel seven fourteen. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. End quote. Uh, this is a reference to uh, God basically claiming a future son of David as his own son. You can go back and read the context uh, for yourself, and you should be a Berean. Uh, verse number six. Again. When he brings the firstborn into the world, and the firstborn here is clearly talking about Jesus, the heir, quote, and the quote comes from Deuteronomy 32, 42, let all God's angels worship him. Now, only God is due worship. And so, when... The Messiah is spoken of when the Son of God coming in the flesh is spoken of. 
God's instruction is all the angels need to worship him. Verse number seven. So angels give worship, not receive. Verse number seven. Of the angels, he says, and this quote comes from Psalm 104, verse number four. But before we go any farther, I have to make this this notation. All the quotes in the book of Hebrews out of the Old Testament are clearly taken from the Greek version of the Old Testament. They are distinct in little clear ways from the the, uh, Hebrew text that some people were using uh, in uh, Jewish circles back in the first century. Uh, And as such, uh, it is much easier to understand the thrust of this quotation in Greek. Uh, And I have to say, I think the, um, the English translators have fallen short on representing that thrust, because it literally says uh, he makes spirits into his messengers and flaming fire beings into his servants. That's literally what it says in the Greek text of the psalm here. And so what is being said is, Spirit beings become his messengers, and fiery spirit beings become his servants. So Jesus is not in that classification. Jesus is not one of the angels. That's the point here. Verse number 8. But of the Son, he says, all right, Your throne, O God. So, which category is the son in? He's in the God category, not in the angel category. He is is in the uncreated creator category, not in the created angel category. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Uh, By the way, this is being quoted from Psalm as well. Uh, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Uh, And so the language is all about kingship. Uh, We've got a throne. We've got the the, um, ceremonial rod uh, of the kingdom, the scepter. Verse number 9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, which is, this is one of those uh, things that are always puzzling to us because we're not exactly sure how all this works. We've got God the Father and God the Son interacting with one another. They are one, and yet they are distinct. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So he has been anointed or marked out for an official job, for an official position that is 
more significant than any angels have ever held, because he is the Son of God. Verse number 10, the writer continues, quoting this time from Psalm 102. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. See, once um, creation was marred by sin, uh, they were all slated for eventual destruction. And so that's what's being talked about in this psalm. Continue, verse 12. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. So that's all to be expected with the old heavens and the old earth disappearing and being replaced. But, but, this is the point, but you, you God, you the Father, you the Son, you the Holy Spirit, you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, quote from Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And again, it's a rhetorical question that expects, anticipates the answer, no angel, none, only Jesus. And then verse 14, I really love because it helps explain the job set of angels. Are they not ministering spirits. That's what the psalm earlier was actually saying. Remember that? So here's the application. Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve, that's the act as servants, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels are the servant class of the universe. They were created by God to serve his purposes in a universe where mankind, male and female, had been made in the image and likeness of God. So they are the ones that are supposed to be working behind the scenes now to help the fallen human world find their way back to right relationship with the God in whose image and likeness they were made. So no angel is going to be redeemed because they are not like humans made in the image and likeness of God. They are servant class. And so... We've run out of time for today, so mark your place, and we'll continue on this next time we're into God's Word.